Hello class and welcome to the review episode of the TM288 Historical Theology 2 podcast. I'm sure you're sad to hear this will be the last episode of the podcast that we have and even more sad to remember that you still have a final exam next week. The good news is that there aren't really going to be any curveballs on this exam so if you have downloaded the final exam study guide you should be in good shape. What I'm planning to do today is walk through the basics of the test and then cover the main content from the second half of the semester. And if you have any questions, you'll have a chance to come to our last class Zoom meeting at 1 p.m. on Friday. Or else you can send me an email and I'm always happy to discuss that way. Or we could even set up a one-on-one time to meet having virtual office hours. If you've got the study guide, you will notice that on the essay questions, I will be choosing two of three essay questions. You'll have the opportunity either to write on justification and or pneumatology or the doctrine of the Holy Spirit and or on the three perspectives on the doctrine of revelation, neo-orthodoxy, liberalism, and fundamentalism. I'll remind you that for each of these doctrines, you have the overarching document that maps out the key disputes on each of these perspectives, with the exception of pneumatology, which was so varied that I did not provide the overarching um, documentation that I did in some other areas. I'm going to start by briefly reviewing the doctrine of justification, given that this is something that's the oldest, um, and then I'm going to move through the content of everything after the midterm. So this might be one of your essay questions. Recall that we looked at the two perspectives of the Protestant and the Catholic perspective. And these perspectives have fundamental disagreements on what justification means and on the fundamental terms in relation to it. Now the very basics of the Protestant perspective can be summarized with the solas, faith alone, grace alone, and Christ alone. Though, to get full credit on the essay, I expect you to know more than these three terms when it comes to the uh, details of the dispute. So, what further details are expected? First of all, it's helpful to know that both Protestants and Catholics agree on some things. They recognize that justification has to do with our status before God. They believe that this justification is a product of grace. And they recognize that justification is only one step in a larger process of salvation. There are considerable disagreements, though. Protestants limit the doctrine of justification to a matter of status alone. Justification pertains to what they call imputation, receiving a status that is not rightfully ours. The Catholic Church, by contrast, accepts the idea of infused righteousness, They have a different understanding of grace, in other words. Where for a Protestant, grace refers to God's favor, whereby God looks at us and counts us as righteous through imputation. From a Catholic perspective, grace is perhaps better understood as an infused substance, as something which God uh, puts into our nature through justification, thereby actually changing us so that we are holy. Another major dispute between Protestants and Catholics concerns the nature of faith. From a Protestant perspective, faith is merely an instrument. It is a means by which we are joined to God. However, from a Catholic perspective, faith has a qualitative dimension to it. 
It is a quality that can be better or worse off. Protestants tend to view justification as a one-time deal. You are justified or you are not. Catholics believe there can be progression in justification. As one uh, improves in faith by adding love and contrition, one has, <clears throat> excuse me, one has a higher quality of faith and thereby reaches higher levels of justification. There's much more to be said here. Your essay can dig into some of the reasons for the dispute, including disagreements over the role of tradition, over which biblical text is used, the Textus Receptus, or the historical Greek text, and so forth and so on. That's all I'll share for now. You've got plenty of other class material you can look over to review. All right, content after the midterm exam. We began by jumping into the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, starting with one aspect of the Ordo Salutis, the order of salvation that is typically associated with the Spirit, and that is the doctrine of sanctification. We saw in the context of the Great Awakening an increasing emphasis on the Spirit and its role in revival and conversion, an increasing emphasis on the what might be called the democratization of Christianity, where increasing voice was given to lay Christians, to women, and to other ethnic groups, though this latter group was a much slower process in comparison with Europeans who had a um, stranglehold, I guess we'll say, on teaching and preaching opportunities in North America in the 1700s. So it was within this context that we explored John Wesley and his notion of entire sanctification. Now, when Wesley spoke of entire sanctification, he did not mean that we would be completely free of sin. Rather, he meant that the Holy Spirit could bring us to a point where we will never sin intentionally. It's a fine distinction, but an important one. According to Wesley, Christians might reach a point where we never sin by design, but we still may accidentally harm others, tell something that is not true, or be parts of systems of injustice. Now, Wesley believes that the way to approach entire sanctification is through an increase in faith and through certain methods of spiritual discipline. And for this, his followers are known as the Methodists. In time, though, some Methodists rethink this notion of entire sanctification and begin to link it much more clearly with the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. In Wesley, union with Christ was still front and center in his understanding of sanctification. But by the time we get to someone like Phoebe Palmer, we begin to see a very different perspective. She speaks of a second blessing, whereby a Christian can let go and let God in a manner that they suddenly receive the Holy Spirit that instantaneously makes them entirely holy. Many Reformed Christians, so those following in the tradition of Calvin and Ursinus and Biza and many others that we have considered in the course of this class, many Reformed Christians would object to not only the notion of entire sanctification, but transitioning to a new subject, they would object to the notion of any miraculous manifestation of the Spirit. And in some sense, we can look at entire sanctification as a miraculous work of the Spirit. 
When it comes to sanctification, the Reformed position is that passages such as Romans 7 indicate that we will continue struggling with sinful desires and therefore cannot reach a state of entire sanctification. The Reformed perspective focuses on such passages as Romans 7 and Romans 3 in the New Testament, whereas Wesley would tend to focus on passages like the Sermon on the Mount, where Christ challenges the crowds to be holy as his Father in heaven is holy, to be perfect even as his Father in heaven is perfect. Palmer, of course, combines this idea with the language seen throughout Acts of the laying of hands and the miraculous gifts that manifest as a result. So, if you were to write on the essay question about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, one way that you could expand it would be to consider the key passages of Scripture that each side uses as central to their hermeneutic, which they then use as the key for interpreting other passages throughout the New Testament. When it comes to cessationism, Warfield and others believe that the Holy Spirit is no longer active in miraculous works because they find a number of places where the New Testament attributes those works to the purpose of confirming the teaching of the apostles and empowering their early witness. Cessationists would say that now that the Holy Spirit has given us the Bible, we no longer have need of such miraculous gifts as confirmation because they are already recorded in the text of the New Testament. Therefore, given that there are claims, such as 1 Corinthians 12, that the spiritual gifts will cease, we should not expect things like speaking in tongues or uh, things like prophecy to continue today. Now, these arguments have a, a long history in the Reformed tradition, and we could see where some Reformers used something like them uh, against some versions of the Anabaptists during the Reformation era. However, they are perhaps more central in the 1800s and 1900s due to the emergence of several Christian groups, including Second Blessing Wesleyanism, that greatly increased their emphasis on the miraculous and charismatic gifts. Much of this began actually in the 20th century. In 1901, there was a Kansan named William Parham who was uh, in charge of a ministry of a college campus actually, and a young woman in a revival spoke in tongues. Seeing as this was the beginning of a new century, the century right before the end of the second millennium after Christ's uh, death and life, Parham believed that this miraculous gift was a sign of the end times and began to publish on the miraculous appearance of the gift of tongues that had been given to his student. Word of this traveled across the United States and attracted many people to come and learn from Parham who by now had relocated to Texas. One of those individuals was a man named William Seymour. Seymour was black, and so, as a result of the segregation of this time and Parham's prejudices, was not allowed to fully participate in the teachings of Parham, and yet he learned enough by listening through a church window that he too became convinced of the possibility of miraculous spiritual gifts. So he traveled to California and Los Angeles and began what is known as the Azusa Street Revival, where we see massive conversions and extreme manifestations of these spiritual gifts. This revival is now credited as being one of several sources of the emergence of Pentecostalism. Now, Pentecostalism typically believes that not only are the charismatic gifts like speaking in tongues possible today, they are in fact probable. Many Pentecostals would even say that if you have not 
received these gifts, you can doubt whether you have, in fact, been baptized with the Holy Spirit, and therefore your salvation is in question. The question of miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit, which I've set up so far in the context of North America, was in fact a global question in the 18 and 1900s. And we covered a number of examples of positive outcomes from these claims to very negative ones. So among the negative were the Taiping Rebellion uh, in China, where an individual interpreted a dream that he received as a vision from the Holy Spirit telling him that he was the brother of Christ and that he was charged to overthrow the Chinese government. The outcome of this was the bloodiest civil war in history. Another example was the great Zosa cattle killing, uh, where a tribe in South Africa that was exposed to Christianity, uh, there was a a uh, young lady called Nongawuse who claimed to see two uh, messengers from God, one of whom was the resurrected Christ, who was promising miraculous spiritual change and deliverance for the people of the Zosa if they would but have faith and kill their cattle. The result of this, uh, when this prophecy was enacted, was the death of many Zosa through starvation. Sometimes, these claims to miraculous gifts by the Spirit could turn quite dangerous and troubling. At other times, there is a much stronger argument for the validity of the claims. I gave the example of William Wade Harris, for example, uh, who in Western Africa received a vision and believing he was empowered by the Holy Spirit, went out to evangelize and probably converted up to 100,000 individuals in what is today Ghana and Liberia and Sierra Leone. Uh, another example would be the experience of Chilean Pentecostal Methodists who experienced much of a, a revival that was quite similar to that of Parham and resulted in the emergence of a group of Pentecostals in Latin America. So lots of interesting stories that frankly can be a bit difficult to know what to do with when we're dealing with the doctrine of the Holy Spirit um, in um, the 18th and excuse me in the 19th and 20th centuries. All of that content can be helpful content as you are exploring the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Um, but all of this content also reveals a major theme that we've been looking at in the history of Christianity. And that is the tension between egalitarian, or more equal, perspectives and hierarchical, or more authoritarian, tendencies in Christianity. We saw this in the first part of the class, but for this exam, you'd be asked to write on things since the 1700s, when our unit after the midterm began. So where have we seen this play out? Well, one major area is in terms of race. We've seen the exegetical basis for slavery that was used by many white Christians to justify the transatlantic slave trade and the institution of chattel slavery in North America. We've seen rather poor exegesis, but they would often appeal to the Hamaitic curse, where Noah cursed his grandson Ham as a result, um, excuse me, his grandson Canaan as a result of the sins of his son Ham. We've also seen that appeal was made to Old Testament passages talking about slavery and to the Tower of Babel. Theologians raise significant challenges to these interpretations, 
including objections about whether or not the descendants of Canaan could be identified with Africans. There's really not much of a basis for that identification. But there were also positive, constructive theological responses here. Seymour insisted that the Holy Spirit was to be poured out on all nations. It was a reversal of Babylon, hence speaking in many tongues. It was poured out on the sons and daughters of all nations in Joel 2, which was then discussed in Acts chapter 2. Now, such an emphasis in Pentecostalism led to a new mythology that was more egalitarian, and the Azusa Street Revival allowed women to teach just as it sought racial reconciliation among its members. Don't forget either our reading from Robert Clarence Lawson, where Lawson argued that the genealogy of Christ actually united all strands of the human race descended from Noah's three children. If this is the case, then in Christ himself we find all races, which takes away any justification for viewing one race as cursed more than another. This would be one strong example for writing on, say, a short answer question on the egalitarian and hierarchical tension here. Another area where we've seen this, though, is in tensions with colonialism. My unit on global Christianity explored uh, tensions between the Martoma Christians in India as they encountered Roman Catholic Christians for the first time in over a millennium during the period of Catholic uh, evangelism and missions in Asia. We looked at Latin American colonialism, the encomienda system, and the ownership or believed ownership that Europeans thought they had over indigenous peoples. A number of theological objections were raised here by some Jesuit missionaries, even though they were still trapped in other areas with prejudice and injustice. So De Las Casas, for example, is renowned for fighting for the rights of indigenous peoples, but he also suggested using the transatlantic slave trade as an alternative source of economic resources to that of enslaving indigenous peoples. So we can't paint even the reformers of the past in too rosy of a light. So a few more points on our global Christian uh, unit. Even though we're moving on a little bit from our discussion of egalitarian and hierarchical tensions, we discussed briefly Beatrice Kempavita, who was a Congolese woman and medium who uh, sought to develop an enculturated version of Christianity that would better suit the people and culture of the Congo. Uh, she was executed for her efforts there. We looked at Ethiopian Christianity, perhaps the most one of the most ancient forms of African Christianity. Um, within the first few centuries, uh, Ethiopia had a large church, and the Ethiopian uh, emperor had in fact converted. But if you go all the way back to the Bible, you see Philip and the Ethiopian, and the Ethiopian eunuch's conversion in the book of Acts. So a very ancient branch of Christianity, and also the only branch of Christianity that was able to resist European colonial rule in entirety. Finally, we spent a little bit of time talking about, in Japan, the anti-Christian persecution that came about partly as a result of the fact that colonial aspirations were so often linked with missionary efforts. Japanese government rightly was skeptical of missionaries because he thought they would soon be followed by soldiers intent on conquering Japan. Of course, beyond this was the added tension regarding how missionaries should treat uh, foreign cultures. 
Francis Xavier had sought to completely understand Japanese culture and link himself with social elites, whereas later Franciscan missionaries were adamant that among Japanese culture there was only evil to be condemned for its non-Christian ideas and practices. These are all but brief glimpses of something that we can discuss much further in other contexts. This is a rather rushed history class focusing on doctrine, though. So let me wrap up, therefore, by looking at the final doctrine that we focused on in historical theology. That is the one that arose from what's known as the modernist and fundamentalist controversy. So this debate between originally fundamentalists and Protestant liberals over what the doctrine of revelation is all about, over the question of what the Bible is and how we should use it. You get a great glimpse into how this dispute about the Bible spilled over into all doctrines if you're reading J. Gresham Machen. Um, but for now, let's focus on this single doctrine. So the three perspectives I walk through are fundamentalism, liberalism, and neo-orthodoxy. Fundamentalism emphasized verbal plenary inspiration. In other words, the very words of Scripture are inspired by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit directed the authors of Scripture in various ways. Sometimes this was through providing visions to, say, the Old Testament prophets. Sometimes it was through God's providence that guided the writing of the Bible um, when individuals wrote psalms, for example, where they may not have even realized that they were inspired. I walked through the four steps of revelation and inspiration through A.A. A. Hodge, which includes God's providential guidance to bringing authors to the right point where they experience the things that God desires they write about, on through the Spirit's illumination of these authors so that they have genuine insight, direct revelation from God to these individuals where that insight takes the form of propositions, and then inspiration that ensures that these propositions are properly recorded. Fundamentalists would say that these uh, truths are correct not only in idea but in form and in detail, and they would hold to the doctrine of inerrancy, defended by theologians like Warfield and Machen. Inerrancy is the idea that the original autographs of the New Testament contained no error, and it is thought to be a safeguard to the perfection of God, for a perfect God would never allow there to be errors in the text of Revelation. This position was challenged as a result of the rise of modernism by theologians like uh, Schleiermacher, Strauss, von Harnack, and Bultmann, who I discussed in our lectures. The basic perspective here of Protestant liberalism is that uh, essentially fundamentalists have the genre of the Bible wrong. Much of the Bible is in fact myth, which means that it is intended to convey truths by appeal to stories that may or may not be historically accurate. For many Protestant liberals, the thought is that in fact uh, much of the stories are not true. This is often driven by uh, motives like those we see in Bultmann of demythologization. Bultmann has an apologetic uh, intent in mind. He doesn't believe that the modern Christian can in fact accept the miracles of the Bible given the fact that we have the modern uh, scientific miracles, so to speak, of electricity and medicine and so forth and so on. So what we need to do is find the kerygma or core truth of the Bible to pass on to subsequent generations. 
So Strauss and his teachings on myth and Bultmann and his teachings on demythologization show us that liberals do believe that the Bible contains some reference to Revelation, but they certainly do not accept that the Bible is inerrant. And they believe that that kerygma, that core truth of the Bible, is masked behind ancient and outdated ways of thinking and speaking, such that it is the task of the modern theologian and Bible scholar to find the truth hidden within the myth. Third and finally, we find the theology of neo-orthodoxy. And here we paid particular attention to Karl Barth and his many arguments for why it is that natural revelation cannot work. Recall, and, and this actually fits a little bit under the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, but recall the distinction between natural and uh, special revelation that we discussed in the context of Warfield. Natural revelation refers to what the Spirit has placed in nature that we may discern with unaided human reason to know who God is. Special revelation refers to uh, that truth that the Spirit has provided for us in other forms, which we can only perceive when the Spirit is also working in us to elevate our senses. Bart insists that there can be no natural knowledge of God through natural revelation that is, has any reliability. God is the absolute other, who, because he transcends space and time uh, and location and matter, is beyond our ability to perceive and understand. Yet, nevertheless, Bart believes that revelation is, in fact, possible thanks to the self-revelation of God in Christ. In fact, Bart structures his entire doctrine of revelation through the doctrine of the Trinity. The Son is the one who has come to reveal the Father. The Spirit is the one in us who enables us to recognize the Son as the Father's self-revelation. If this is the case, then technically speaking, there are three forms of the Word. There is the Word incarnate, there is the written Word of the Bible, and finally, there is the proclaimed Word of the Church. In each of these circumstances, Bart and Neo-Orthodoxy would say you only have revelation if, through the work of God, the event of revelation occurs. In other words, there are people like Strauss, Bart would say, who can pick up the Bible and read it, but they do not encounter God there. They encounter only what they think to be myth and moral principles, which Bart would believe are probably a human projection onto the heavens. No, unless the Spirit fosters the event of revelation, Bart says, we know nothing about God. So, that is a very brief outline of these three perspectives, which again could be your third essay question. Well, that's just over 27 minutes worth of content summarizing several months of work. If you have any questions, do please let me know. Otherwise, thanks for listening, especially those of you who made it through all these podcast episodes. Wish you all the best as you take the exam, and I hope you all have a wonderful summer.